Hey everybody, Joe here from the Lions Led by Donkeys podcast. If you enjoy what we do here on the show and you think it's worth your hard-earned money, you can support the show via Patreon. Just a $1 donation gets you access to bonus episodes, our Discord, and regular episodes before everybody else. If you donate an elevated level, you get even more bonus content. A digital copy of my book, The Hooligans of Kandahar, and a sticker from our Teespring store. Our show will always be ad-free and is totally supporter-driven. We use that money to pay our bills, buy research materials that make this show possible, and support charities like the Kurdish Red Crescent, the Flint Water Fund, and the Halo Trust. Consider joining the Legion of the Old Crow today. And now back to the show. Hello, and welcome to the Lions Led by Donkeys podcast. I am not Joe. I'm Tom. And with me is Joe. Hello. Uh, It is still weird not doing the intro, um, but I'm... I'm, I'm working through it. Uh, <laughs> uh, everybody's going to have to bear with me. Uh, as people have noted in the last couple episodes that I kind of sound like shit. Uh, it's because I've acquired a, a fun uh, case of uh, laryngitis. Um, and the doctor's like, well, you should just try not to talk um, or drink or smoke. I'm like, look, I, I literally live to do all of those things. So I'm just going to have to wait, wait for it to run its course. You're doing like a self-hatred speed run right now. Yeah, I mean, at least it doesn't hurt. Um, like yesterday was really fucking bad. Um, like I ordered food uh, because I'm leaving for like a week, so I don't want to buy groceries. They'll sit there and be bad. Um, so I've been ordering food almost every day, which is fucking wasteful. I mean, it's, it's at least it's a four. It's not like ordering from Uber Eats or something where it's super expensive, but still it's wasteful. But uh, the guy couldn't find my apartment, so he called me on the phone, and I literally could not speak to him. Like. And I, I, so I had to like text him, uh, like how to find it because I could not speak on the phone. And it hurts <laughs> so much. Uh, I think part of it is also winter in Yerevan is just awful. Um, I mean, winter in Armenia isn't great in general, but in Yerevan, it's so bad uh, because it gets really foggy and cold. And because there's so much fog uh, and the, the, the environment, like Yerevan's effectively in a giant crater. So like it's in a hole. Uh, so like you have all of this fog. It looks like fucking Silent Hill, um, <laughs> and it also traps all the car exhaust and smog uh. into the hole uh, for the winter. So like if you don't smoke, congratulations, you do. Um, yeah, you might like, as well just take it up. Yeah, it's like uh, it, like I made a joke yesterday. One of my friends was like, "Is this fog or smog?" The answer to both of those questions is yes. Um, <laughs> And it just like it fuck like I walk to the gym because I, I I pretty much walk everywhere here. But I was walking to the gym this morning, and like I was like out of breath when I got to the gym because you like it feels like you're breathing through a straw that has like paper jammed into it. You know, it's like the uh, the reverse of high altitude training for like high performance athletes. Like you're just like walking to gym inhaling all this smoke and just imagine how well you can perform when you move to. A country that like isn't filled with smog. Yeah, I'm 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 uh, prepping for the Olympics in a country that has like health and environmental standards. It's uh, uh what if the uh, what if the Olympics was in Shanghai? Just like all those fumes. Uh, yeah, uh, or like what it like? Let's do the World Cup in Mumbai. Like, I mean, it's pro- it's probably not that far off considering they had it in fucking Qatar of all places. So you know. I don't, but Qatar for, I mean, I don't mean this as a, as a compliment because Qatar is evil, uh, but like they're at least they probably have decent air quality. It's just really hot. <laughs> I mean, how, how high quality is the air if it's like breathing in fire? 
Yeah, yeah, that's true. It's like uh, when I was when I was in Kuwait, I was only there for like a day, getting a flight, and it was just like walking on the surface of the sun. If someone was blowing a hair dryer in your face, and that hair dryer was full of sand, so it's like fucking god, this is horrible. Much like that, a uh, smash mouth, smash hit, walking on the sun. Yeah, uh, it it also uh, much like Smash Mouth, uh, Kuwait is in uh, Shrek. Many many people don't know this. Wait, what? <laughs> uh, probably not. Uh, they they probably funded some weird thing with oil money or something. <laughs> the Puss in Boots movies are funded by Kuwait. <laughs> the Kuwaiti royal family is uh, proud to present Puss in Boots. I mean, like, but to be honest, like, don't, don't most despots all have like weird fascinations with movies? Yeah, I think, uh, like, obviously, I think the best recent example is uh, Osama Bin Laden's massive porn collection <laughs> uh, that is full of so much fucked up shit, the CIA won't release what it was, which is, like, one of my favorite stories of all time is they will not say what kind of porn Osama Bin Laden was jerking off to. It's like, why? Why is that a state secret? What, w- what was he doing? Also, like, to be fair, considering how much anime he had on that hard drive as well. I, I think oh, it's it, hentai. It's yeah, fucking hentai. We, we can make some strong inferences what was on it. I wonder if Osama Bin Laden was a fan of Neon Genesis 7 Killian. I mean, I would love to hear his interpretation of what it means. You know, he looking at Shinji doing the Leo point like he just like me for real. you know i bet it's the weirdest of possible worlds like he's only into like slice of life comedy anime Um, just like him running around the compound with a slice of toast in his mouth (laughs) he's a huge naruto guy uh i mean like with the wing formation of an airplane that wasn't the uh, airplane on 9-11 doing the naruto run technically (laughs) i was just about to fucking say that (laughs) But oh god! Uh, if we're going to talk about uh, another great tragedy, it's great segue. Uh, since yeah, we, we 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 had to get off our chuckles out of the way now, <laughs> yeah, because it only goes downhill from here. So when we were last speaking, King William was now firmly atop the throne in England and secured a Protestant ruler. Was well, had secured a Protestant rule for England, Scotland, and Ireland. Now, over the next several hundred years, there was a series of acts by which the Union of Scotland and England became Great Britain. And then later, in 1783, the Irish Appeals Acts, or the Renunciation Act, as it's also referred to, uh, by which no appeals of British laws in Ireland would be heard in British courts. And the Irish House of Lords, by extension, became less of a political and legislative body, independent of the Crown, and more in line with the British Parliament and the House of Lords. So... Essentially, this solidified Ireland's connection to Britain. Now, it simply wasn't enough. By the 1790s, the Crown, frustrated by constant rebellions and uprisings in Ireland, sought to issue a final act that would bind Ireland to Britain once and for all. As we discussed in the last episode, by this time, access to institutional power was restricted to a small minority, the Anglo-Irish of the Protestant descendancy. Frustrated by the lack of reform among the Catholic majority, eventually led, along with other reasons, to a rebellion in 1798 um, involving the French invasion of Ireland and the seeking of complete independence from Great Britain. This rebellion was crushed with much bloodshed and the motion for union was motivated at least in part by the belief that the rebellion was exacerbated as much by brutally reactionary loyalists as United Irishmen. As by United- f- Wait, 
Hold up, the French invaded Ireland? <laughs> yeah, there was French involvement in 1798. Um, several battles were fought, actually, in my home county of Wexford. And to this day, 1798 is remembered as one of the last great pushes for independence before the 20th century. So there is, like, over the course of the next probably 200 years, there is a lot of European involvement in Ireland, mainly as to try and take a crap shot at Great Britain. Um, sure of course so yeah just like that's why the french got involved like we don't care about the irish but we fucking hate the british yeah god wait until we get to the 1940s and we tell about who sent arms to the ira um (laughs) you you could take a guess i know i know in the 20s i don't know much about the 40s i know in the 20th century momar Gaddafi was involved because he's always involved in everything in that era yeah He he sold guns to street gangs in fucking chicago it's wild yeah, the the people's king. He just was redistributing arms. Like, the, but the thing is, that there's a weird connection between Irish football and Gaddafi. So, like, there was like <laughs> soccer teams that went and played in Libya. Wasn't it? Wasn't one of his sons like a fake pro football player? Uh, like, uh, Gaddafi effectively bribed a Syria uh, side to like put him on the roster and he was fucking terrible i yeah. remember that i mean if you want like nepotism children i think that's the most mild form of it um, yeah i mean wh- why not i mean he's he's definitely not the first person to do that he won't be the last yeah so furthermore catholic emancipation was being discussed in great britain and fears that a newly enfranchised catholic majority would drastically change the character of the irish government and parliament it also contributed to a desire from london to merge the parliaments According to historian James Stafford, an Enlightenment critique of the Empire in Ireland laid the intellectual foundations for the Act of Union. He wrote, The exclusion of the Irish Kingdom from free participation in imperial and European trade with the exclusion of its Catholic subjects under the terms of the papal laws from the benefits of property and political representation would further disenfranchise the Catholics. And, you know, these critiques were used to justify a parliamentary union between Britain and Ireland. I feel like the I feel like the the dispossession of the Catholics was the whole point. <laughs> it doesn't happen on accident so well, you know, especially when they're a majority. Yeah, yeah. So in the eighteen in eighteen hundred, the Act of Union was passed, uh, through which the legal, governmental, and political links between the two countries were solidified. It enshrined in constitutional law the union between Great Britain and Ireland, and includes some of the following articles, which were will be immediately relevant to anyone who is vaguely familiar with Irish history. So we're gonna I'm gonna read out some uh, legal articles for you. I'm just gonna I'm just gonna play this. <laughs> so Wait, uh, by playing homies, you're kind of inferring that England and Ireland are now homies. Well that that's what they thought. And it's also, you know, shout out to Shocks. Um I'm sure he'll be listening keenly for me, my reading of these legal articles. So here we go. Articles 1 through 4 dealt with political aspects of union. It created the United Parliament. In the House of Lords, the existing numbers of the Parliament of Great Britain were joined by, as Lord Spiritual, four bishops of the Church of Ireland, rotating among the dioceses in each session as Lords Temporal, 28 representative peers elected for life by the Peerage of Ireland. The House of Commons was to include the pre-union representation of Great Britain and 100 members from Ireland. Article 5 united and established the Church of England and the Church of Ireland into one Protestant Episcopal Church to be called the United Church of England and Ireland. This is going to become relevant. 
uh, but also confirmed the independence of the Church of Scotland. Article 6 created a customs union, with the exception that custom duties on certain British and Irish goods passing between the two countries would remain for 10 years, a consequence of having trade depressed by the ongoing war with revolutionary France. Uh, Our boy Napoleon is sticking his head in again. Hell yeah. We stand stand a short king. (laughs) Short emperor, whatever. Exactly. And before anybody gets mad at me, I know he was normal sized. Okay, leave you alone. Yeah, he. How many cubits was he? That's the that's the only measurement that I that I trust at this stage. He was precisely one Napoleon in length. <laughs> We're going to measure stuff in Napoleons. Um, Article Seven stated that Ireland would have to contribute two sevenths towards the expenditure of the United Kingdom. The figure was the ratio of British to Irish foreign trade. This is going to become very relevant in like two minutes. Uh, Article. Eight formalized the legal and judicial aspects of the union. So, Joe, do you have any questions about how this can go wrong? It sounds uh, like all of it's going to go wrong. Uh, first of all, Lord Temporal, that's some Warhammer 40k shit. Um, that sounds like someone who works for the fucking Inquisition. Secondly, it, this, I mean, this is kind of the point, of course. This strips Ireland of any kind of self determination and, and self rule. Very obviously. They don't even have their own fucking church anymore. Yep. Ding, 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 ding. You are right. And over the course of the 19th century, British control over Ireland tightened as in mainland Britain, the Industrial Revolution was underway and the United Kingdom's new cities full of factories and workers needed food to eat and resources to burn. You can tell what's coming. Uh, Similar to the British colonial story all over the world, Ireland's resources were exported en masse to Britain, be it labor, raw materials or food. And then finished products were resold back to the colonies. During this time, there was consistent political unrest in Ireland as there was an almost constant tension between the rule of Britain and landed aristocracy and the Irish Parliament. Many of the newly ascended Protestant class were sympathetic to the situation of the Catholic Irish and were dedicated to their emancipation from the penal laws and their subjugation. So, the year is 1940. Have a guess what happens. Oh, uh, let me guess. World War II. Yes, World War II. Um, in the 1840s, a strain of the potato blight struck Europe and decimated potato crops all across Ireland. I'm going to try and say this, the actual word. Uh, Pithothoria infestans arrived in Ireland in and around 1845, and the situation at the time could not have been the more perfect storm to decimate the country. I'm assuming they were brought in on like exports or something, right? If if they've never been there before. Yeah. So the the difference between this strain of potato blight to others is that it's it's parasitic more than fungal. So a lot of the research into it that has tried to explain where it came from, it said that it arrived from ships from the U.S. and the Americas. So oh, wonderful! It's it's great how th- that keeps happening. I mean, of course, it didn't happen on purpose, but it's much like the uh, the Spanish flu. Yeah, uh, it was pinpointed to happen. I believe it started. I believe Kansas. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And then it was tr- trucked on over to Europe because of World War One, and uh, it, it, within the lungs of some fucking conscript, <laughs> some like sixteen year old who's been dragged away on a ship is uh, hacking up his lungs, and he's like. Oh, I hope the the fresh air in Europe will help me. Yeah, they, they open up the sh- the troop transport door like, oh, no, but dead bodies in here. All right, this is Spain's fault. Uh, <laughs> I mean, don't get me wrong; I'm fine blaming the Spanish for most things, but you know, not that one. 
Yeah, like this. I don't think the Spaniards have done a whole lot good in history, but you know, <laughs> they gave us tapas. Well, I'll give them that. Small plates, restaurants are uh, are great in my books. Yeah. All right. Well, if your if your country exists and was once a great world power, and the best you can offer us is small plates, I got nothing to say to you, man. <laughs> <laughs> so, at the time, due to the penal laws forbidding Irish Catholics to own land. Most lived as subsistence farmers on small subdivided plots of land. As a side note, at, at the Act of Union in 1800 would have had a direct effect on the impact of the potato famine as by the 1840s, over 70 representatives of the Irish Parliament were landlords with large holdings of land rented out to poor Irish farmers. Once again, fuck landlords. Weird how that keeps happening. It's like this constant through line in history of landlords being parasitic little fucks yeah it, it, it it's going it's going to come up um their accommodation was meager and in 1845 24% of all irish tenants were on less than uh were on between 0.4 and 2 hectares which is 1 to 5 acres in size while 40% were on 2 to 6 hectare hectares 5 to 15 acres Holdings were so small that no crop other than potatoes would suffice to feed a family. Shortly before the famine, the British government reported that poverty was so widespread that one third of all Irish small holdings could not support the tenant families after their rent was paid. So they created a, like, effectively, um, they kind of did a pull pot here, right? Like... Uh, but, like they put them on land that was so incredibly small and probably just bad land as well um, that they could only grow X amount of crops. Those crops were not enough to feed anybody. And on top of that, they created a giant monoculture, which is all things you do not want to do. But also, and it's something I'm going to cover in a couple of minutes, that they weren't just growing potatoes. They were growing other stuff. It was just that they only had po- enough space to grow potatoes to feed themselves. Right, right. Like the the main staple crop that they needed to survive was a monoculture. It's not a good sign. The family survived only by earnings as seasonal migrant workers in England and Scotland. And following the famine, reforms were implemented, making it illegal to further divide land holdings. In 1841, the census showed that Ireland had a population of just over 8 million. And in 1845, the Earl of Devon finished his report on the levels of privation in Ireland. And in his report, he said, you ready for this, Joe? Oh, hit me. It would be impossible adequately to describe the privations which the Irish labourer and his family habitually and silently endure. In many districts, their only food is the potato, their only beverage water, their cabins are seldom a protection against the weather, a bed or blanket is a rare luxury, and nearly in all their pig and manure heap constitute their only property. Good God. I, all right, I, I'm, I'm sure you're going to cover this. Maybe, I don't know. I, in case anybody's wondering, no, I have not seen the script. That's why I'm the guest. Um, <laughs> they're in union with uh, England and Scotland, yes. uh, right? Uh, so and they are subjects of the royal crown. Mm-hmm. Why is England not shipping them food? I think I know the answer because I, I, this is my field of study. I just I I've never really studied the famine uh, a whole bunch, and we're I know there's there's probably Irish listeners and stuff. We know it's a genocide. We're calling it the name that is generally known as. We know that this was a genocide committed against the Irish people. Uh, but what what was the reasoning for like because they couldn't just in in 
you know, in the press or whatever in the in the world news, it's not like the English could just be like, oh, fuck them. We're not sending them food. But like, what was their rationale? Because there's always some kind of explanation. So I, I'm, I'm going to get into it, but there's there's two kind of reasonings. One is, you know, policy failure at first. And then second is essentially outright malice. Like, I know a lot of like people harp on about that book, How the Irish Became White. You know, Irish people up until maybe like the early 20th century were considered like a subclass by a lot of people in the UK that we were considered, you know, savages and needed to be cultured. Just like the US, yeah. Yeah, needed to be cultured in the British faith. Um, We were seen as fundamentally different from, uh, you know, Protestants in the UK. And there was the religious aspect of it as well, that Cromwellian, like, righteous sort of fire of the Protestant faith, like that thing still kind of um, existed, but like... Huh. So this is like a punishment from God for being Catholic, effectively. Yeah, there there is that aspect of this is kind of like cosmic justice for our savagery, but it's also uh, caused partially by the Enlightenment, one of the one of the worst things to ever happen. Um, so now, as the British government had not the best history in responding to famines and crop collapses in Ireland alone. Uh, in Ireland alone, there had been a series of crop collapses over the previous century and a half, and in each incident, there was only a moderate response, if any. Uh, you look at any kind of colonial power, the function of colonization is to extract resources and value from the colonized territories and then resell you know, finished products. That's pretty much what Britain did in Ireland. Like If you look at forestry in Ireland, um, only 10% of the original forests, or maybe it's even less now, actually, um, still exist in Ireland because in order to build the British Navy, they chop down all our trees. Uh, it's like, yeah, I mean, there's, you know, it, obviously this doesn't happen with people that listen to our show. Uh, I would imagine not, uh, you'd imagine we would have chased you out of there by now. Uh, but a lot of people will attempt to point at like, well, you know, colonialism is bad, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, they left administration, they built railroads and schools. It's like, they did that to better facilitate the extraction of resources. Like a very good example, again, with the British is India. Um, like look at the Bengal famine. Like the infrastructure was built there not for the betterment of people, but for the betterment of colonial extraction. Because you can extract more things if you have a more educated workforce and a, and a bigger workforce, that a workforce that can move around rapidly by rail and things like that. Like it's not about like, benevolent colonialism it's not a concept that exists mm-hmm. and it's funny because i don't have it in the script but i'll talk about it in a little bit about there was like some very touching stories of solidarity from like people around the world in response to the famine in ireland like um <laughs> that's right you can cut out the part about you googling and just make you sound smart yeah like there was this kind of ideological thing of you know let them starve and there were some like really touching stories of like other groups around the world like particularly like the i think it's the choctaw nation in the u.s yeah, um, yeah, yeah. The, the head of the the ottoman empire sent uh food as well you know it ironic there was yeah um but in the beginning there was a response to the famine corn was secretly ordered by prime minister sir robert peel to be shipped from the u.s but 
the relief effort would fall short as most Irish mills were unable to grind maize into usable flour. In response to this failure, Peel, Peel repealed the corn laws which import, imposed high tariffs on cornmeal, be, uh, on cornmeal, causing the prices for bread to be high. Now, Peel's uh, rule was very short-lived and on June 29th, Peel was ousted by Lord Russell and this replacement would spell disaster for Ireland. Russell was a firm believer in laissez-faire politics and appointed Charles Trevelyan as head of the famine relief effort. Imagine a late... Okay, well, I don't, we don't have to imagine this because it happened, but like, ima- like, think of a guy who's like, ah, I see millions of people are starving to death. Let's let the markets decide. Well, that's literally it. Charles Trevelyan, who was in charge of the administration, uh, limited the government's food aid program because of his firm belief in laissez-faire politics. In January 1847, the government abandoned this policy, realizing that it had failed, and turned to a mixture of indoor and outdoor direct relief. Of course it failed. The policy was doing nothing. Like, fellas, I have an idea. We just sit here and we let the Irish starve. Fast forward like a year, like, guys, I have some bad news. Doing nothing did not work. Uh, it's, It's like the same fucking thinking that, like, I have when I'm dodging work. Like, oh no, I've fallen behind. Why did I fall behind? Because I didn't do anything. Yeah. Um, like the the former of indoor uh, direct relief was workhouses through the Irish poor laws. So essentially, if you were couldn't pay your rents, you were homeless, um, vagrancy was illegal, you got sent to workhouses where you were forced to work for food, pretty much. Jesus Christ. I I think I've heard some horror stories about the Irish workhouses. Yeah, so essentially you were you were housed in cold stone rooms, fed meager meals, and all in exchange for basic subsistence you would be tasked with uh processing stuff for export. You could be processing stuff like wool, grain, food, and it was just you did it because you had to survive. Um the latter was soup kitchens. Um for the outdoor direct relief, there's a there's a joke in Ireland called taking the soup, where if you have a traditionally Protestant name, so so it goes that uh, during the famine, if you took the soup that was offered by these soup kitchens, you had to convert to Protestantism and change your name. Good God! So, so like, say, like my name is O'Mahony, so that's O apostrophe M I H O N Y. My name in Irish is O'Mahuna. Um, you would have to like drop the O from your name or like change your name completely. And you can see the direct effects of that in how certain surnames are spread across Ireland because certain names might be more common in areas that might have had more popularity with soup kitchens and, you know. And your surname has nothing to do with your religion at all. Like, uh, th- that's... I mean that 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 is obviously just like targeted cultural destruction and like the elimination of a of a cultural identity. That like the fact that you have an O in your name does not make you Catholic. It's like my my mom grew up Catholic. She was a fucking Irish. Well, it it, <laughs> it, it, it does have some significance in like Irish Catholicism because it, it, like Protestants at that time were people who had either moved during the plantation of Ireland or had descended directly from planters or were part of like you know irish aristocracy so they did have different names so sure but it's like it's a a very obvious cultural identifier that they wanted they wanted to eliminate irish identity yeah like other than what they considered the good ones yeah so in june 
1847, the Poor Law Amendment Act was passed, which embodied the principle popular in Britain that Irish property much must support Irish poverty. The landed proprietors in Ireland were held in Britain to have created the conditions that led to the famine. However, it was asserted that the British Parliament, since the Act of Union in 1800, was partly to blame. So essentially, landlords in Ireland were left to help hold the book they were told like okay these people are starving you have to feed them this is your oh, property so this you- is gonna go great yeah so uh, at this point was- you can't even get a landlord to fix fucking heating or air conditioning you're like pipes leaking but yeah like, let's have these landlords uh fix a famine yeah so this was illustrated in a london newspaper in february 1847 there it says there was no law it could pass at their request and no abuse it would not de- defend for them. And in March, the Times reported that Britain had permitted in Ireland a mass poverty, disaffection and, de- and degradation without a parallel in the world. It allowed proprietors to suck the very blood of that wretched race. Jesus Christ. Yeah. So now there is something that is not very talked about when it comes to the famine, and that is Ireland was producing more than sufficient enough food to feed its people, but the vast majority of it was being exported to mainland Britain and to its stations in other colonies. So, yeah, yeah, of course. It's just, it's just like in what they did with the Bengal famine. Yeah. Uh, where, now, was this, was this being produced by like normal Irish farmers or was yep. it? Yeah. So you're, you would have to pay a certain amount of your crop to the landlord and then that landlord would then sell it to exporters to sell to Britain. Now, there for people who argue that, you know, obviously you're a genocide researcher, so there is some complexity in it. And like obviously there are some like there are technical things that have to be fulfilled for it to be considered. So and one of the things is that there was a for people who had larger holdings of land, there was quite a few who were actively selling um, the majority of their crops to Britain for export, but the influence of that on the effect of the famine overall, I think, is l- maybe a little bit overstated by some researchers. But the majority of people agree that the famine was an act of genocide, and by the end of the famine, the Irish population that was once eight million people was halved, either through disease or emigration. And Jesus it, Christ! And it is only in the past, I think couple of years that it has so nearly 200 years later that has finally gotten back to what it was yeah like uh, we we talked about this a little bit during our uh, king uh philip's war series uh this like concept of uh population destruction cycles uh generally they're known as shatter zones um where like uh, a population can be absolutely devastated but if they're left alone afterwards like they'll eventually um i mean using the term left alone is kind of simplistic but like it's not a continuous campaign of destruction the numbers will come back um like that's why until there was uh, sustained settler colonialism in north america native americans went through cycles of massive population destruction and then rebirth because they had time to bounce back and like or like the black death in europe um and like that's sometimes that's something will as people will argue like why the famine wasn't considered an act of genocide it's like well then why did they stop like well i don't know if you know this but a genocide doesn't have to be successful for it to still be a genocide because 
outside of a few very uh, isolated cases, mostly from uh, ancient history, uh, no genocide has been successful. So it's like you can't use that as a bellwether of so like, well, there's still Irish people. So it's what? Who cares? Yeah. And the famine, as it's referred to in Irish, is called Ungortha Moor, which is the Great Hunger. And it like it had so much, so many consequences on the Irish people. For one, it concentrated the Irish language in the West. So the Irish language like has slowly, slowly been disappearing over the past like 150 years, mainly because, you know, English became the language of business, of work, of if you wanted to get a job and survive, you had to learn English. But also the collapse I mean, of the school, the, like, the school system and everything was also very dominated by English, right? Mm-hmm. And the collapse of culture as well, like the majority of people who could afford to leave Ireland left or stayed that could afford to survive. But that meant that a lot of people who would have created art and literature in Ireland had moved abroad to predominantly the UK or America. Um, and it caused a kind of cultural collapse, uh, which is then addressed in the early 20th century. But it had a massive effect on Irish politics because as you can as you will see over the next kind of 70 years a lot of the popular support for irish irish emancipation and irish culture was coming from abroad so it was irish people who had set up you know in the us in continental europe in the uk were then sending up setting up like gaelic leagues so for other irish artists or irish culture could survive abroad um and future Taoiseach of Ireland, Eamon de Valera, is one of those people whose family moved during the famine and then came back during the Easter Rising, which you've covered in that series. Right. Also, yeah. fuck Eamon de Valera, that's all I'm going to say. <laughs> it's, some, it's something kind of similar. I think it's probably similar for all diasporas, whatever you want to call them, um, that the diasporan communities become much more intense about those kind of things, which I'm sure you and Shox talk about in 33rd County. Uh, but And there's there's jokes here that like Armenians from LA are the most Armenian people possible because they <laughs> because they make it their entire personality and then you hate them. Yeah, uh, but like um, it and it's something that we will talk about quite a lot in the next episode of the series because it comes into play quite a lot. But yeah, so with Ireland decimated after the famine, this led to renewed attempts at some sort of independence from Britain after witnessing the tre- its treatment of the Irish people. Over the next 70 years, the attempts to establish a free Irish state with, would grow ever more successful until 1922, when the Anglo-Irish Treaty was signed, creating two states on the island of Ireland. Well, what, what, one legal state. Uh, <laughs> well, you know, two-state solutions don't really work. Um, no. But the- I, it's, it's funny that I'm flying to the UK tomorrow and, and talking about this now. <laughs> yeah, you're going to have so many great talking points to talk. Because like people in general in the UK just do not know anything about Irish history. They don't even know. They know very little about Northern Ireland as well. Um, which I feel like that's probably on purpose, though. Yeah, oh, it's, it's 100% on purpose. Um, we, we will talk about that in episode three. Um, like there's there's a reason why most Americans couldn't tell you anything about Guam or Puerto Rico, mm-hmm. other than like, yeah, those are places that exist. They got great cars filled with the biggest speakers you've ever seen in your life. 
You just hear someone going in there saying, I'm yeah. like three in the morning, you know, you know. Um so the first was the Irish Free State, which com- uh, later became the Republic of Ireland, and then there was the Northern Irish State, which comprised of the six counties of Antrim, Tyrone, Armagh, Fermanagh, County Down, and Derry, which remained part of the United Kingdom. The formation of Northern Ireland came as a solution to the Home Rule crisis, which uh, Home Rule meant Ireland could remain part of the United Kingdom, but would have some level of parliamentary independence, so kind of like an autonomous state. Um, Northern Ireland would be governed from Belfast and by extension Westminster and the Republic would be governed from Dublin. From the get-go, there was problems on both sides of the border. In the Republic, there was immediately a civil war uh, between those Uh, who accepted the... I was wondering when that was going to come up. Yeah, accepted the Anglo-Irish Treaty and those who took a staunch Republican view and did not want to accept the the secession of six counties from the Irish Free State. In the North, the political temperature was not much better as the North began to establish itself as a political entity and an extension of the United Kingdom, it became very apparent who was in power in the new state. The border of Northern Ireland was drawn in order to ensure an unassailable Protestant majority in political and civil life. Most Protestants were Unionists slash Loyalists. Most Catholics were Nationalists and Republicans uh, who were in favour of an independent Ireland. Uh, There was a state of self-imposed segregation between the two communities with Protestant Unionists and Irish Republicans existing in a state of informal self-imposed segregation with Irish Catholics experiencing discrimination in housing, employment and education. So I just so I'm sure that won't cause problems shortly. Yes, uh, I just want to take a second because I'm sure there are some Irish Americans who are listening Um, Republican means a very very different thing in ireland and yeah. so does nationalist so i feel like we i also had to say this during the uh, the easter rising episode because i was calling people republicans and i was talking to an audience of americans mostly uh mostly americans I'm like it's not that don't worry about it yeah so the republican means the ex- the right of ireland to exist as a republic similar you know think about re- napoleonic republics you know um and then nationalist is a it's about like Irish national identity, um, not in the way of you know creating an ethno state, but uh, the creation of like a Irish national identity and the maintenance of you know Ireland as an independent state, similar to how other former former colonies have nationalism that is very different from I want to have a gun in Arby's. Um, yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's it's the the concept of nationalism in in colonized places is always complex to try to explain because you know generally uh my audience uh the audience of our show is you know western uh, western living english speakers and a nationalist in your country is a bad fucking thing uh like you know an australian or a a, i assume canadian nationalists are a thing there's got to be one or two out there that's just Um, that's just a quebecois yeah yeah the the worst people in france uh the worst sorry like i get it say that again the worst people in canada uh just i'm just kidding that there's probably worse people i don't know um but like it's 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 so much different than running into your very common these days like american nationalists are like no we should uh you know melt the middle east and you know deport you despite the fact that you were born here because i don't like your political views and stuff like that like it i mean admittedly even uh where i live now is, is starting to get those guys um Calling yourself an Armenian nationalist a couple of years ago wasn't necessarily a bad thing, but now when they say it's like it's effectively Armenian QAnon people, yeah, 
it's it's changing rapidly and uh it's unfortunate uh that that is happening pretty much everywhere um yeah we have we have it in ireland we have like a weird a national part national fascist party that's uh, run by a guy who's five foot two um <laughs> who got like beat up recently uh, they were trying to have some like weekend retreat and some uh antifa super soldiers went up and kicked the shit out of them um it was like all over the news it was so funny it's five foot two that's like punching a child i mean you know just, wh- just punching straight down onto his head punching fascist children is okay <laughs> for its First 50 years, Northern Ireland had an unbroken series of Unionist Party governments. So, uh, unionism... Of course they did. They have the, the, it's purposely built that way, right? Yeah, exactly. So, unionism is the, the cultural identity that Northern Ireland belongs as part of Great Britain. Um, almost every minister of these governments were members of the Protestant Orange Order. So, I'm going to have to take a second to explain what the Orange Order is. So, the Orange Order is a Protestant... Um, I'm trying to be charitable here for a second. Uh, I wouldn't bother. So yeah, they are a Protestant supremacy group. Um, that are honored. They're the, still around. They're still around today. Right? Oh yeah, they're they're. It's still a big thing. They are named after William of Orange, who we talked about last episode, and they exist purely to essentially try and create a protestant ethnostate in northern ireland whenever there is um a tragedy where someone is murdered you'll always see videos coming out of like an orange lodge where they're like singing songs celebrating like the murder of an innocent civilian or a journalist or you know someone who's been caught in a crossfire between you know groups like the uvf and the ira um yeah they're horrible fuckers um i'm not i'm I'm gonna make no qualms about saying that um and another group of horrible fuckers um northern ireland's new police force was the ruc which is the royal ulster constabulary which succeeded the royal irish constabulary it too was a well a completely protestant uh operation and lacked operational independence responding to directions from government ministers the RUC and the Reserve Ulster Special Constabulary, or as they will be known going forward as the B Specials, were a militarized police force due to the threat uh, that was organized due to the threat of the IRA. They had at their disposal the Special Powers Act, a sweeping piece of legislation which allowed arrests without warrant, internment without trial, unlimited search powers, and bans on meetings and publications. Joe, do you think this is going to go well? So you have. Two different Protestant armed groups. Uh, they will eventually. I know they'll eventually turn into death squads, um, and absolutely no freedom to do anything if you're not Protestant. So uh, essentially, like the B specials were like the armed unit of the RUC. So like they were the armed unit of the police force, and um, the Orange Order is kind of like it, it's a weirdly kind of Masonic kind of group. But that's kind of like the civilian branch. The RUC are the police. B specials are the armed unit and they all kind of operate together like it's kind of you know cops within blue line shit would the orange order like were they like street fighting too um yeah they had they had marches it's kind of like it's hard to detangle like are they like irish proud boys like what's going on here kind of yeah actually that that's a that's a good analogy they like they have like a lot of marches to like commemorate historical battles and um, which is going to become increasingly relevant going forward but yeah they like 
the IRA at this time didn't really exist as it would come to be. Um, after you know the War of Independence and uh, the Civil War, the IRA kind of didn't really have anything to do other than uh, oppose partition, where the Orange Order were already established both institutionally through their involvement with like government officials, being elected uh, officials and stuff like that. So they had some sort of like state-backed legitimacy where that was not necessarily implicitly stated, but existed nonetheless. Um, the Nationalist Party uh, acted as the main political opposition in Northern Ireland, with successive unionist governments putting in place informal discriminatory policies in order to freeze out any possibility of Irish Catholics gaining any significant political power. This extended to the extensive gerrymandering of electoral districts and the allocation of public housing. While some argued that the, some accusations were unfounded or exaggerated, there's enough cases to show a consistent and irrefutable pattern of deliberate discrimination against Catholics. So in 1949, the Ireland Act was ratified and it was the first legal guarantee that the region would remain part of the United Kingdom unless it had the express consent of the Northern Ireland Parliament at Stormont to leave. So this is where you kind of have this majority rules thing come into effect that like uh, people like Ian Paisley, who I'm not necessarily going to talk about in this episode, I'm going to talk about in the next episode, is so terrified of that essentially Catholics are going to outbreed Unionists and they're going to vote to rejoin Ireland. Um, but it's also, it is a political mechanism that disenfranchises um, Irish Catholics from essentially voting to re leave the UK and um, join, the, uh, join the Republic because gerrymandered districts mean that only Unionists will get elected and you need the express consent of parliament um whereas it's not you know like a popular vote in a similar way that like the scottish independence vote happened a couple of years ago so this solidified the position of majority rules in northern ireland with the majority of population being at least protestant many being explicit unionists voting for unionist politicians um during the period of 1850 or during the period of 1956 to 1962 uh, the IRA engaged in what would become known as the Border Campaign or Operation Harvest, as it was referred to internally by the IRA Army Council. The aim of this campaign was to destabilise security within both the Republic and Northern Ireland through a series of guerrilla attacks to undermine the political backing for partition and overthrow what they saw as both sides of a partition government. No, it was the there was the Republic government, re Irish Republic government. Uh pro-partition at this point it, it, it was just kind of like you know it was a political fact that you know that was you know the core agreement at the anglo-irish treaty is that northern ireland remained part of britain it was a compromise that sparked the civil war pretty much uh okay uh it, i mean i know this is kind of off topic but like what does the government say about it now it's kind of a non-issue politically in terms of like government unless you are someone like Sinn Féin, which is the Irish Republican Party. Um, it it's just an accepted fact, you know. Northern Ireland exists, um, and the only thing about you know uh, a unified Ireland is it has to be at the explicit consent of you know the entire population of uh, Northern Ireland. So it has to be you know majority rules. The majority of people want to leave the UK and join Ireland. I it's a complex issue, and I think. I could talk for hours about, you know, well, what are the pros and cons of both? But I think 
at the end of the day, it is down to the people of Northern Ireland to decide themselves what they want. Yeah. The, prob- the problem is, is that there is a political impetus to not give them that vote. Um, and that's the, that's the biggest disagreeing point that, that's the biggest point that a lot of people can agree on, is that the, like, the vote is essentially being blocked. Right. So this campaign was in contradiction to the 1948 directive from the IRA General Army Convention under General Order Number no. 8 that was the de facto disarmament and was effectively the recognition of Northern Ireland as a sovereign region. General Order Number no. 8 prohibited any armed action whatsoever and under this new policy any IRA members that were caught with weapons would be ordered to dump or destroy them and not to take any defensive action. Um, over the course of six years from 1956 to 62, uh, attacks on RUC barracks and special targets were designated to, and I quote, break down the enemy's administration in the occupied area until he is forced to withdraw his forces. Our method of doing this is guerrilla warfare within the occupied area and propaganda directed at its inhabitants. In time, as we build up our forces, we hope to be in a position to liberate large areas and tie these in with other liberated areas. That is areas where the enemy's writ no longer runs. So, you know, pretty pretty bog standard uh, liberatory uh, paramilitary yeah. stuff. These attacks were conducted all over the border on both sides with the exclusion of Belfast due to IRA leader Paddy Doyle, the Belfast operation commander, being appre- apprehended by the RUC prior to the campaign being undertaken. The campaign was a disaster and gathered ah. virtually no support from Irish nationalists in Northern Ireland and only further alienated both unionist and Protestant communities alike from the independence from Britain. Why? What was the, 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 the reason? Like, you'd think that the nationalists would be in favor of it. It's just that it, it targeted, you know, unjustified targets. And at that time... Uh, surely, surely a topic that will not come up again regarding the IRA. Yeah, yeah. We, we'll save we'll save this for the next episode. <laughs> so, on the other side of the fence, the unionists. Now, uh, one thing to this day that seems to be very confusing to a lot of people is that Westminster does not care about Northern Ireland. It fundamentally sees the North as merely an obligation. Um, yeah, like you talk to most people in the UK, they don't know anything about Northern Ireland, and. They generally don't care. Um, if you look at like political policy to this day, politically, you know, the government, both Labour and the Tories, just do not care about Northern Ireland. So uh, the Unionists enjoyed, uh, largely enjoyed better opportunities than their Catholic counterparts at the time, benefiting from structural, structurally preferential treatment from Stormont and the Unionist majority in politics, which had held fast for about 50 years at this stage. Um but that being said, with traditional industries such as shipbuilding in Belfast and manufacturing on the precipice of decline, the place of the working class union as Protestant, uh, although slightly better than Catholics, was precarious nonetheless. Over the 60s, the two groups would come to clash politically, civilly, paramilitary and spiritually. So as tensions grew into the early to mid 1960s, there was an emergence of unionist paramilitaries, namely the UVF and their offshoots which were middle class and petty bourgeois uh, unionist paramilitary groups comprised of doctors, lawyers, businessmen, uh, officers who had served in the British army and other similar professional class jobs that were reserved of educated Protestants at the time. 
Where's the where's the where's the militia for like uh, the the small business guy who owns like two de- uh, car de- used car dealerships or something? Oh, don't worry, we're going to talk about that in the next episode. The uh, the working class uh, unionist paramilitary. Funnily enough, women weren't allowed in the UVF as well. Um, it was purely the reserve of guys. No, that's not surprising. Yeah. So the group was founded by Gusty Spence, a former British Army soldier who, with a coterie of like-minded loyalists, was fueled by a fear that Protestantism was under threat from the growing Catholic community in the North and to echo the sentiment of home rule is Rome rule, Spence and a loose association of unionists set up to form a group whose purpose was to violently oppose nationalist and republican influence in the country and their counterparts, the IRA. Around the same time, IRA Chief of Staff Cahill Goulding tried to move the IRA away from militarism uh, which had failed during the previous border campaign and towards a grassroots left-wing politics aimed at organizing and ultimate, ultimately radicalizing the Catholic community both north and south towards a Marxist republicanism. It's what I like to hear. Uh, I don't think that worked. Uh, no, it didn't. Um, <laughs> by the late 1960s, in response to the deepening discrimination faced by the Irish Catholic community, several groups were formed to campaign for equality in Northern Ireland. Inspired by the civil rights movement in America, groups like the Northern Ireland Civil Rights Association and the Derry Housing Action Community were formed and begun to hold marches and protests. These groups had strong ties to Irish nationalism and republicanism groups, and although their focus was on, on addressing the injustice, for many unionists, they were simply a front for republicanism and another IRA campaign wrapped up in a social justice cover. So... Essentially, it's like uh, Republicans being afraid that, you know, gay rights is going to take away their guns. Yeah, of course, of course. Um, And it's important to point out, I know we mentioned it earlier about the Irish diaspora. There was a lot of connections between the Irish movement, uh, civil rights movement in the North at the time, and the American civil rights movement. Obviously, a lot of Irish people had moved to the US and had family in the US at the time. So you had like a lot of information coming from that movement to Northern Ireland. Um, someone that we're going to mention briefly in this episode and talk about a lot more uh, going forward, Bernadette Devlin was like heavily involved in that kind of cross-cultural knowledge uh, passing through in the late 60s and 70s. Um, now, given the deeply politicized nature of marching and demonstrations in Northern Ireland, protest marches were banned in Derry as they were seen as a barefaced Republican stampede and an affront to the loyalist history of the city. And on the 5th of October 1968, the protest groups organized a march and were met with violent resistance from loyalist groups and the RUC who batten charged the protesters. So something that I forgot to mention about the Orange Order is these boys love marching. They love marching. That's what I thought. Like, uh, I know, like whenever I see something about like Northern uh, Northern Irish um, like politics or something, there's always there's always some dudes in very fancy clothing marching, and I guess it's those guys. Um, yeah. So like the like the function of Orange Order marching is essentially a supremacist sh- show of force. Um, yeah, of course. It's meant meant to show that we are here. There's a lot of us, and we outnumber you. That's pretty much it. And then if if you show up, the cops will take our side and beat you up. Man, that sounds really familiar uh, in America very recently. 
Yep. Um, in January 1969, a march by the radical group People's Democracy from Belfast to Derry was attacked by loyalists at Burntollet, uh, five miles outside of Derry. When the marchers, many of whom were injured, arrived in Derry on the 5th of January, rioting broke out between supporters and the RUC, who were seen to have failed to protect the march. That night, RUC members broke into homes in the Catholic Bogside area and assaulted several residents. An inquiry by the Lord Cameron concluded that a number of policemen were guilty of misconduct which involved assault and battery, malicious damage to property, and the use of provocative sectarian and political slogans. So um, I'm going to shocked. Uh, this is my shocked face that the cops were doing themselves a fascism. Yeah. So um, I can guess that one of the political slogans was "Tigs out," which uh, a tig is a slur for a Irish Catholic in the north of Ireland. Um, if you see the bonfires on, yeah, the bonfires. I was always curious about those. I don't get those. So that happens on. Uh, July the 12th, which is the anniversary of, you know, William winning uh, the crown at the Battle of the Boyne, which we talked about in the last episode. But quite often you'll see election posters, Irish flags on these bonfires being set on fire. I've seen I've seen Nazi flags. I've seen Confederate flags. I've seen all sorts of cursed shit on those bonfires. So uh, one slogan that you might not know is K-A-T, which means kill all tigs. Ah, lovely. Yeah. So you can understand the type of people we're dealing with. Um, it was after uh, this attack in January that barricades, which would soon become a constant fixture, were erected around the Bogside area. And vigi- What's the names that they use for those? Like barriers for peace or some insane shit oh, like no, that? The, the, no, the peace walls come later. Peace walls, the peace walls, that's right. Oh, the, those, those will be in the next episode. Um, uh, vigilante patrols began uh, patrolling in order to keep the RUC out. And at this point, the RUC were considered a greater danger to the Catholic communities due to their deep ties Uh like the Orange Order, the DUP, and the violent strains of unionism, such as the growing UVF. Yeah, I mean, I imagine they would be much more threatening. They're the armed wing of the state, and they're showing up and crushing your skull for existing. Yep, yep. Now, this is a good time to talk about the murals, too. Um, This is when the now-famous You Are Now Entering Free Dairy mural is painted by John Casey. Um, Firstly, the name Dairy in and of itself is contentious. You've probably seen... Road signs. London Dairy uh, for some people, right? Yeah. So the name change was thrust upon the city by King James VI of Scotland, uh, who uh, was then, uh, who had just been elected King James I of England and Ireland following the death of his cousin Queen Elizabeth I in 1603. The astronomical. That sun- is a long grudge over a name, I have to say. As someone that lives in a country that loves long-term grudges over names, I can respect the dedication to the the anger. Yep. So the astronomical sum of sixty thousand pounds was raised by livery companies in the English capital, and the result was one of the ambitious projects of the Ulster Plantation. Um, the most quintessential Protestant organization, the Apprentice Boys of Derry, was founded in 1814. They're going to become relevant soon. And the use of the abbreviate name suggests uh, that it was normal and natural for the loyal Protestants to use the town's original name. And it was the Boundary Commission in 1925, which was set up to redraw the north-south border after, tr- after partition, 
also makes mention of the name Derry, despite the Commission's unionist majority. The first murals um, uh, came around 1908 with unionists painting large murals of William of Orange on the gable end walls of houses in order to strengthen the Protestant identity within an area, and Catholic murals would come much later uh, in the 1970s. Often the gable end wall is donated to the mural and the art is preserved on up until today and now features heavily in the tourism of the area. Not all murals are sectarian and some of them feature Irish history and mythology. So, yeah. So it got called Londonderry um, because for some guy it was a vanity project. And for now... That's, that's still a, a problem, right? Like, is it is it still legally called Londonderry? Um, yeah, so... Londonderry um is not the official name. It 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 de- depends on the sign. It'll appear on some signs. It'll not appear on others. Um, but in April 1969, the first casualty of the clashes between protesters and the RUC occurred. Samuel Devaney and his team hasn't been a death up until now. That's kind of incredible. They don't have gu- so, They don't have guns, Joe. Just just a lot of people getting their teeth kicked in. I guess. Yeah, pretty much. Um, so Sam Devaney and his daughters were beaten by RUC officers in their home after a ride in the Bogside on the 19th. Devaney died from his injuries on the 17th of July and is considered by many the first victim of the Troubles. There was further rioting on the 12th of July. Um, like I said, the 12th of July is a day where there is huge Orange Order marches in order to commemorate the Battle of the Boyne and the winning of William of Orange, solidifying those, the Protestant majority. Blah 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 blah. Those bonfires are fucking massive too. Yeah, like, like they they start. How, how how did like drunken idiots not fall off those things and die? They fall over all the time. Like they they literally like <clears throat> you'll see like footage of them falling over all the time. Like they start constructing those bonfires so early. Like they start like collecting all the wooden pallets and everything, and it's like. Where do they even get all these wooden pallets? There has to be thousands of them. Uh, like shop, like when you think about like deliveries to shops, like they all come on wooden pallets. Like how much construction stuff <laughs> they they have to burn Ireland, uh, Northern Ireland's yearly like pallet surplus every July. Yeah, pretty pretty much. And um, so the further riding on the twelfth came as a consequence of the Orange Order parades and. Derry citizens set up the Derry Citizens Defense Organization in order to defend the Bogside area from attack and intimidation. The group was Republican by nature, but many members were just residents or other left-wing activists. Um, on the 12th of August, an Orange Order march was planned in commemoration of the Siege of Derry during the Williamite War. Um, so, on the 12th of August, the siege of, to commemorate the Siege of Derry, um, the march was organized as a deliberate signal of supremacy during the bubbling tensions between the two communities. The march did not pass through the Bogside, but it passed Waterloo Place and William Street, where the initial fighting broke out. The Unionists throwing pennies at Catholics who were protesting the march, and then the Catholics threw returned fire by throwing rocks and marbles at the passing march. There was no slingshots yet. Uh, yeah, they were, they were using slingshots to hit, throw the marbles. Um, okay, that makes more sense. That shit would suck. Yeah. So the RUC were out in force uh, to enforce some peace, quote unquote peace, uh, were barraged with rocks and other missiles and moved against the growing crowd of Catholic rioters, encouraged Protestants to continue slingshotting stones at the Catholics. Um, the police then tried to alleviate the pressure 
They were under by dismantling the barricade and moving into the bog site on foot and in armoured vehicles. This created a gap uh, through which Protestants also surged, smashing the windows of Catholic homes. Almost like they did that on purpose. Yes, almost like they did on purpose, Joe. The Nationalists began throwing petrol bombs, uh, this is a Molotov cocktail for anyone unfamiliar, and rocks from the top of the Rossville Flats, stopping the RUC advance and injured 43 of the 59 officers who had made the initial push into the bog site. Um, just remember the the name Rossville Flats. Um, it will become important uh, in the next episode. There was a coordinated effort on the side of the Nationalists protesters with first aid stations set up and a coordinated positioning of barricades in order to stop the flow of people into the bog site. Radio transmitter, radio free dairy broadcast messages encouraging resistance and called on every able-bodied man in Ireland who believes in freedom to defend the bog side. Many locals- Come down here and throw some fucking marbles at the cops. Yeah, fuck yeah. Um, many local people, however, joined in writing of, on their own initiative and uh, some impromptu leaders emerged. So- <laughs> I don't need propaganda. I'm going to go fuck shit up on my own. Like, yeah, I didn't need to be encouraged to do this. But like, that's the thing is that a lot of people who joined these uh, riots, they they didn't do it because they wanted to smash up stuff. They did genuinely were worried for their safety with the RUC. Oh, yeah. well, I mean, how how couldn't you be? I mean, you, ha- you it's more than just these um, paramilitary showing. I'm like, the government is, is, is storing through and fucking your shit up, you know? Yeah, so it was at this time when people like Eamon McCann and Bernadette Devlin, you know, rose to prominence. Bernadette Devlin uh, was a community leader and became very, very important in, you know, the civil rights movement. Bernadette, like, Bernadette Devlin, for anyone who doesn't know, is, like, so cool, so smart, and is so fucking badass. There's a great anecdote, which I'm going to talk about in a second, but, like, she, her and Eamon McCann, they, they have had their differences in the past, but they are too, like, very interesting people who have spent their whole lives fighting for equality in Northern Ireland and around the world. The RUC, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get to that. There's a very, very funny anecdote. Um, the RUC were underprepared for the resistance they faced. Their riot shields were not sufficiently large enough to cover their bodies. And their, <laughs> and, uh, their, <laughs> what, a, what a fucking oversight. And their protective gear was not flame resistant and many officers were severely burned by national nationalist petrol bombs. Stretched thin with no chain of command, uh, <laughs> orders for... Oh no, our uniforms are candles! There was no order for relief, and there was no extra officers to cover them. So over the next three days, lots of RUC officers had to stand uh, at attention for three days. Just getting um, pelted with marbles and Molotov cocktails. Pretty much. Uh, many <laughs> many have said that- Their fucking uniforms burning and melting to their skin and shit. <laughs> many have said that this exhaustion would lead to officers actively seeking help from unionist marchers and protesters in assaulting nationalist protester positions. They would already do that. They literally already did that. Don't look for an excuse. Yeah. So late in the evening, the RUC began flooding the bog side with CS tear gas, and many of the oh god, that shit sucks. Many of the protesters were forced to seek refuge from CS gas indoors, and others using wraps and scarves to protect themselves from the gas. So by August thirteenth, the then Irish Taoiseach, which is equivalent of our Prime Minister Jack Lynch, made a televised speech stating that the Irish government can no longer stand by and see the innocent people injured and perhaps worse. He said he had asked the British government to see to it that police attacks on the people of Derry should cease immediately. He also called for a United Nations dispatch to be sent to Derry 
and he mobilized the Irish army units to be sent to the border to set up field hospitals in order to aid civilians injured in the fighting. It's about time. Yeah. By the 14th of August, the riding had reached a fever pitch and almost everyone from the bog side was now involved with the riding. The RUC had also deployed the B specials into Derry, a special armed police unit known for their use of unwarranted levels of violence and collusion with unionists. This cannot go well. Uh, yeah, there was already, always a matter of time before this fucking happened. So the B specials uh, are arriving. And- Sound like a fucking barbershop quartet band ass name. Like the fuck. Oh, the Simpsons. Their name's the B sharps. The B specials, a holy Protestant union with. A unit with literally no training in crowd control shot two protesters and a fear spread throughout the bog site that a massacre was about to occur. Yeah, of course. You don't you don't show, send these guys there without a massacre being the point. Yeah. And it's worth noting that, you know, the RUC didn't necessarily get this reputation out of nowhere. There was the troubles during the 20s um, in the north where they used, once again, excessive levels of violence. But... In the afternoon of the 14th, Northern Irish Prime Minister James Chichester, Chichester Clark requested Harold Wilson, a Prime Minister of Great Britain, uh, to deploy British troops to Derry. And at 5pm, the 1st Battalion Prince of Wales Regiment of Yorkshire arrived in Derry and relieved the RUC. They agreed to not enter the bogside and to stay outside the barricades. This was the first significant deployment of British soldiers on the island of Ireland in decades since partition and was initially welcomed by residents of the Bogside as they saw the soldiers as a more impartial entity than the RUC or the B-Specials. Yeah, I could see that. I, I could see that. They're, they're not a Protestant death squad. So that, I mean, they do have that going for them. Yeah, and they hoped that the neutral force would de-escalate the growing tension in the city. Only a few people, uh, like Burnett Devlin, opposed the deployment, seeing their arrival as little more than further imperialist action and a more subtle escalation of Britain's chokehold on Northern Ireland. Also, yes. Yeah, like, it's definitely two things at once in the situation. Yeah. There's many famous pictures of Derry residents welcoming the arrival of British soldiers, offering them cups of tea and biscuits as thank you for their protection. And as the tear gas began to drift off into the hazy August evening, a calm would briefly rebound off the walls of Derry, but this piece would quickly fade as the arrival of British soldiers would signal that a new reality was about to begin in Northern Ireland. Oh, uh, this is, uh, this is not gonna, this is not going to de-escalate anything. Like, uh, it's, it's interesting because like, I could see where not the, you know, the, the Catholics are coming from. They're like, well, you know, we don't like the British, but they're certainly better than the fucking B sharps over here, uh, who are just slinging guns everywhere. But I get—I mean, the fact that this is just uh, British flexing on what is very clearly a, um, uh, a a trigger point, flashpoint, whatever, for uh, something of a rally, rallying for nationalism in Northern Ireland. Like, of course, yeah. Like Bernard, that's completely right. Yep, and it is right there where we will pick up on the next episode. Ah, oh, man, the next episode is going to be awful. Oh, <laughs> Joe, I'm like. Three thirds or three quarters, three thirds, three quarters of the way done with the script. You do not know how miserable it's about to get. And I mean, that that is saying something when there's so much bad. There's so many bad things that's happened in these three episodes that the, that the famine got like 15 minutes because we had to move on. <laughs> yeah, no, it's it, it is that thing where 
you know, the famine happened across five years. We talked about it for 15 minutes. In the next episode, I'm probably going to spend an hour talking about 10 minutes of actual time. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, oh, I know what you're talking about. Okay. Yeah. If you're listening at home, you know, you know. Um, like, like I said at the beginning, this, these three episodes are not going to be like a complete comprehensive covering of the troubles. It is going to talk about, you know, set the scene. If you want me to come back and talk about like the eighties and nineties bully Joe, um, just tweet, oh, of just, course. just tweet that, that at him. W- there is no need to bully me. That will happen. But I think the, the purpose of these episodes is that a lot of people know about the troubles, but don't know why they happened or, like right, they don't they don't know why they started. Yeah. And it it's simple, you know, it is discrimination and supremacy. Who would have known, you know, a partition state uh would completely subjugate an entire group of people. It's not like it's happening right now in multiple different countries. Yeah, it couldn't be. I mean, I don't know. They they say peace walls. I, I'm I'm convinced. Peace walls work. Peace walls work, Joe. All right. Uh so Thank you again for hosting part two. Uh, this is the area where you get to plug your stuff. Um, I host another history show called Beneath the Skin. It's the history of everything told through the history of tattooing. And I do a show called 33rd County with Shocks from the Zoo Crew, where I talk more about Ireland. I talk about the Irish experience and Shocks talks about the Irish American experience. We should have an episode coming up soon where Shocks explains Duncan to me. So, Oh, perfect. Keep an eye out uh, for I mean, that. I feel like that's an explanation that even I need because I don't understand the, the Massachusetts obsession with Dunkin' Donuts. Um, but uh, yeah, uh, everybody, thank you so much for listening. If you like what we do here, consider supporting us on Patreon. You can get all sorts of stuff. Uh, probably the most popular is our Discord, which is turning into a, a, a tight-knit, if uh, strange collection of very cool people. Um, and you also could get this episode and every other normal episode early for a dollar. Uh, but if you don't have a dollar, that's fine. Uh, it's your money. Do with it what you want. But you can leave us reviews. It's free. Helps a lot. So I've been told. Uh, so go and leave a five-star review. Um, and uh, that would be much appreciated. And uh, Tom, thank you so much for taking over hosting duties for another week. Uh, and uh, until next time, don't invade Northern Ireland. I don't know how to end this.